There's a family at the a pool that my family goes to that uh, we've known for a couple years now and that uh, my wife and I have been looking for opportunities to share the gospel with them. They told us they were raised uh, Lutheran, but um, don't really uh, regularly attend a church now. And we've developed a little bit of a friendship with them over the years. And, uh, but it's one of those weird relationships where you, you know, meet the family at the pool and you just see them every now and then. And it's, you know, it's, it's hard enough to remember their names, but then it's really hard to transition the conversation to, um, you know, so what do you think is going to happen to you when you die? Kind of, you know what I mean? It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to jump from, you know, did swim team get moved this week to the four spiritual laws. And so one day we're, we're hanging out, it's just the, the two dads at the pool. And uh, he, he says, you're a pastor, right? And I said, yes. In my, in my heart, I said, yes. Um, but out loud, I said, yeah, at Emmanuel Bible Church down the street. We had talked about that before, but I was impressed that he remembered. And he said, okay, so I've known lots of Christians throughout my life. But I've never met any Christian who's able to explain to me how God can be fair and just and predestination still be a thing. I got a few minutes, so, so go. <laughs> I got a few minutes, so go. It's right up there with asking about predestination you know, bet- between services. Hey, I know, I know you got to teach in a few minutes, but just real quick, quick question. <laughs> quick question, Pastor. Um, well, that's what I want to do tonight is spend uh, 45 minutes or so talking about that doctrine tonight uh, from God's Word. You know, this is, the, this is the road where all theological discussions lead. Um, and I'm sure you understand this. If you're able to keep doctrines separate in your minds, then maybe they don't all run into the road of predestination. But understand that theology is not just separate strings of yarn that all come from God. They're all connected. It's one string of yarn. Everything about God is connected to another statement about God, which is connected to another statement about God. And this is why any concept of theology is eventually, especially with American Christians, going to run into the debate about predestination and election. You know, if you say, uh, I believe that God is all-powerful. Okay, all-powerful enough to save everyone? Why doesn't he? (laughs) And look, there you are. This is where Christian college students go away, as I said earlier, off into the real world of Christian colleges. <laughs> and they will spend late nights talking about predestination and election. If you believe uh, the Bible, you're going to run into this doctrine and you're going to run into this difficulty and uh, you're going to have strong feelings about it. And I know that there are lots of people at Emmanuel with strong feelings about this because all Christians have strong feelings about this. This is one of those doctrines that gets right to the core of how you view God because it's very uh, easy and, and almost too flippant to say, well, I believe that God's in control of everything, because that sounds like you don't really care about the eternal destiny of people that you're related to. And it's almost equally flippant to say, well, what the Bible says about uh, God, you've got, you can't take it at the full force of what it's saying, because what about my family and friends? You see how both statements can be off-putting to the other side. <laughs> You know, the person who's strong in predestination hears the person say, well, you can't say that because what about my family? And, you know, he hears, well, you're elevating your family above scripture. And the person who says, well, predestination, predestination, to the person who's, who doesn't have ears to understand the grid behind that truth, it sounds like you don't care what happens to people when they die. And so there's, there's impassioned feelings on this topic. And, but as I mentioned, this is where most theological conversations eventually run into this, this discussion. 
Uh, This is where Paul winds up as he's going through the book of Romans. If you're familiar with the flow of the book of Romans, he's making a gospel argument as he's leading up to practical living starting in chapters 12 all the way through an appeal for missions work later on at the end of the, the book. But to get there, he's building up the critical understanding of the truth about the gospel and kind of the essentials of the gospel. Roman, all, all scripture is, is doctrinal, but Romans is certainly the most doctrinal book as it's laying the, the doctrinal framework that we understand essentially the rest of the gospel through. Paul gives words and categories to structures that Jesus taught and are explained throughout the rest of the New Testament. Paul kind of gives us uh, thinking categories for them. Epistemological categories would be the, the phrase for them as we perceive the rest of the New Testament. And so because of that, as Paul's working his way through, um, you know, through the Romans road, as it were, uh, it's not named because of the road to Rome. It's named because Paul wrote that in the book of Romans. And the Romans road would be the, the basic explanation of a, a gospel to somebody that people stand from Romans 1 uh, condemned. Uh, their conscience bears witness that they're sinners and that they're separated from God. Romans 2, their righteousness of keeping the law can't earn their way back to God. Uh, even Gentiles are condemned when they do, when the Gentile says that you can't, um, you know, steal my wallet, that Gentile stands condemned because he's made out a law already that he himself has, has broken. And that takes you through Romans 3. Romans 4 gives you the category for justification that God will declare you sinless based upon the death and resurrection, Romans 4, uh, 20 through 25 of Jesus Christ from the grave, that there is a gospel presentation there, that there's new life uh, that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans 5 then brings you into this world of the two Adams, that the first Adam brought us into sin and the second Adam brings everybody who's in him to eternal life. Through Romans uh, 6, you understand that as you're in Christ, the power of sin is broken in your life, that Christians don't have to sin anymore. They still carry around this, this body of, of sin with them, but they're not, under, they're not ruled by sin any longer. Romans 7 then talks about the progressive sanctification that takes place as you're growing in godliness the rest of your spiritual life. And it seems like that would be a great place to end the book, controversy-free. <laughs> But as he's working through Romans 8, he's talking about how the world will be redeemed and that Christians are being martyred all day long. They're being put to death. And what confidence can they have that their salvation will be secure when they're in a world that is martyring them? And that's where he ends Romans 8 with uh, this, this confident understanding that the Spirit of God himself knows whom he's going to save. That's Romans 8, 27. That he who searches the hearts knows what's in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so there's this concept that God has a will. And, and when Americans hear that will, we quickly go to volition. We think, oh, I, you know, I wanted to go to Burger King instead of McDonald's. But understand, theologically speaking, that's not what the will of God means. It doesn't mean that he makes decisions in, in time. The will of God is this theological construct that, that we have that God knows all things, that all things come from him. They flow from him. He's the father of lights, to use the language of James 1, 17, that God is the, the source of all things. Everything that happens is happening from him. And in the context of Romans 8, even martyrdom. And so then you, you ask the question, if God is sovereign over all things, how come Christians are suffering? How come they're being put to death? And Paul answers that in Romans 8, 28. We know that, that for all those who love God, all things work together for good who are called according to his purpose. And, and there the can of worms has officially been opened. 
where now Paul declares that there are a category of people in this world that have been called according to God's purpose. His purpose is flowing from his will. And if God has called them, he is going to save them. That's what he says in Romans 8, 29. Those whom he foreknew, speaking of before the foundations of time, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse, Romans 8, verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. That's the unbroken chain there. That there are some individuals that are called in time by God. However, their salvation doesn't begin in time when God calls them. It goes back before the foundations of time when God foreknew them and God predestined them. And then in time, he will save them. And at the end of time, they will be glorified forever and ever. And now Paul moves on. He doesn't answer all the questions he raised right there in those few verses he moves on in Romans 8 31 to talk about if God is for us no one can be against us no one can bring a charge against God's elect he says in verse 33 of Romans 8 you can't bring a charge against God's elect because God justifies them therefore you know your salvation is secure Romans 8 35 what shall separate us from the love of Christ nothing can because the end Romans 8 39 because the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord and so that ties up everything together except for that glaring question how can Paul just drop that on us that there are people who are called by God and those that aren't that there are people who are predestined to be glorified and those who are not that raises the category of predestination people ask do you believe in predestination and the answer has to be yes all Christians believe in predestination because it's a biblical word it's used repeatedly in the Bible here's one of those examples right there Romans 8 uh, verse 29, those he foreknew he predestined. But there's other verses as well. Acts chapter 4, Peter declares that Jesus Christ was crucified because of the divine plan and the, the phrase, the word, it's the same Greek word, the predestined plan of God. In other words, God had predestined Jesus to be crucified before the foundation of the world. This is the same will, the same plan of God, that God's will or his plan or his, his uh, covenant of redemption, whatever language you want to use. Uh, I like the phrase covenant of redemption. Other people like the phrase plan, God's plan. That's fine too. That God's plan to save people encompasses his plan for Jesus Christ to be crucified. That plan involved predestination in Acts 4, the, the predestined crucifixion of Christ. Ephesians 1.5, he predestines us for adoption as sons and daughters in the faith. Ephesians 1.11, that we've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his will. And so there's four or five different uses of the word predestined in the New Testament, all of them attributed to God's foreknowledge, his plan before the foundation of time that he will save people. So if you believe in the Bible, you believe in predestination. But then the question quickly becomes, what is predestination then? What's predestination? And it's simple enough, really. The word destination is the same in English. You know, where you're going to end up. Your destination on your road. Where you end up. And pre is the prefix. Prefix, pre, 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 pre. It just becomes infinite regression right there. Lots of pre's. <laughs> beforehand. Where God's destination for you is chosen before time. That's what predestination means. Your destination selected, chosen, assigned beforehand. And so the word predestination means to command the end result of something before it happens. Now, there's different ways predestination can work then. 
And I think probably the common, most common, at least through the last 30 or 40 years or so of American Christianity, the most common way of understanding predestination in the broadest sense has been what, what I call the VCR approach to predestination. And uh, that's not the technical theological phrase, it's just the, phrase, the label I give to it. The VCR approach to predestination is that God has watched the movie of your life already. He's seen what you're going to do. Remember the sticker, be kind, please rewind? You remember that sticker? Uh, um, my children, I don't think they would know what that, that means. It's, it's, it's lost in them. It's part of American culture, lost forever. Be kind, please rewind. And they don't know. They just eject. But the idea is that God watched the movie of your life, rewound the tape to the beginning, and then chooses you to do what he just saw you doing in life. Does that make sense? Not do you agree with it, but do you get the concept of it? That God watches the movie of your life, he goes back to before the movie, and he chooses what you will do in that he already saw you doing on your own. He chooses you to do those things. That's predestination. That God determines your destination. He sets it based on what he saw you doing. God knew what you would do, so he chose you for that. Now, the allure of that is it has a very egalitarian flair to it. It's very fair to it. Uh, that, you know, it's, it's, it's all on your shoulders then. It's very, it's, it's a good American kind of theology, right? It's you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps if, if you just would have worked harder and God would have chosen you for something different, but God chose you. It's kind of the Protestant work ethic on the negative sense to it. Protestant work ethic meets the eternal plan of God, that God saw how hard you would work and chose you to work that hard and, or however it works. Um, the main difficulty with that form of predestination is it removes the saving act of God from his foreknowledge. In other words, God doesn't just watch what you're going to do and see, oh, this person's going to choose to put faith in Christ and this person's not going to. Since this person's not going to, I choose them not to. Since this person is, I choose them too. The problem with that is that it removes God saving this person from his plan. If you're familiar with your own testimony, for example, you understand that in your salvation, it wasn't just you minding your own business and one day you deciding to follow Christ. It was God saving you. It was, you know, the gospel hits you like a freight train. You were minding your own business, running away from God, and, you know, God grabbed you and turned you around and brought you from death to life. You know, it'd be like saying, I, I knew that blind person would see if I just gave him sight. And so I gave him sight and lo and behold, he sees. Well, you had to give him sight. You know, the, death, the dead have to come alive so that they can live. The salvation is supernatural. It's not God seeing that you would respond to the gospel. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is God actually giving you life where he saves you. He regenerates you is the language of John 3. His Holy Spirit causes you to come alive. And all those whom he does that to, guess what? come alive no one can come to the son unless the father draws him and that's the word by the way for raising water from the well that's the the irony of that word in, in john's gospel it's a very water a well term no one can get the water out of the well unless it's drawn no one can come to the son unless the father draws him and the, the rest of that verse all those whom the father draws will come and none will be lost. And so it doesn't make sense to say, oh, I saw that the water I drew from this well would come, and so I decided to draw it. No, no, that's not what, what this is talking about. So predestination is this idea that God chooses your destination before time based upon his own will, his own foreknowledge. This is the language in Romans 8. It's not God knowing what you'll do ahead of time. It's God having knowledge of you before he makes you. 
So God knowing all things about you before he makes you. And again, it's not that God's following a plan somebody else made. (laughs) Like God knew all things about Jesse and so he made those things. No, God knows them about me because he makes me that way. He's the architect. He's the one who's doing the crafting. God's not following instructions that he, you know, he got. He's the maker of the instructions. And so foreknowledge means that God knows you perfectly. He knows everything about you before he made you. In other words, there's, there's good news for that and there's bad news for that. The good news is that God knows everything about you. <laughs> and the bad news, of course, is that God knows everything about you. <laughs> uh, it's, it's amazing to think that God knew everything about you and made you anyway. Um, because of all your weaknesses and frailties, but there's such confidence in that, that that God knows your weaknesses and your frailties because he, he made you. And so that's all in the background of where Paul goes in Romans 9. And Romans 9 is going to start big picture with Israel and it's going to go down to individuals. And so I want to give you a bit of an outline uh, tonight as we go through this. Let me just give you an outline, a little outline here. Predestination is not. Predestination is not, and I'm going to give you a list of things that it's not, and I'll give you a few things that it is at the end. So predestination is, is not, and we'll start with this first one, predestination is not based on anything good inside of your country. Paul doesn't say that God chooses you because of what country you're in. There's no ethical, uh, ethnic advantage. And he went through this earlier in Romans 2 and Romans 3, where we're talking about how there's no benefit of being a Jew when it comes to the saving purposes of God. They're the ones with the covenant, but it's not like having the covenant got them saved. Having the covenants you know, got them to betray Christ and crucify him. So there's no advantage in your relationship with God if a person is, is Jewish. And he's going back to that again because you have to appreciate the really solid uh, place this has in any kind of theology that God's not playing favorites with ethnic groups here. And so let's just jump in at the beginning of Romans. Now we're going to walk through the whole chapter tonight, uh, Lord willing. Paul begins with this, I'm speaking the truth. And you just pause there. It'll be like this all night long. We'll do lots of pauses. You have to marvel when something in the Bible says, this is the truth. Doesn't that seem redundant? Why would a Bible writer need to tell you what I'm about to say happens to be true? I mean, isn't it kind of a foregone conclusion that if it's in the Bible, it's true? I mean, does every Bible verse need that footnote to it? And the reason this is placed here, and Paul does this a couple other times, and 2 Timothy is another time about the I charge you in the presence of God and uh, Christ Jesus and the elect angels to preach the word. That's another place. The reason for these charges is to slow you down and help you see what Paul's saying is not flippant here. This is not theology done in the dark or it's not a late night uh, as he's writing the Romans here and he's about to say things that are are too mature for for even him to understand here. No, there's a lot of thought that's going into this. So he says, what I'm about to tell you, he's writing about predestination here, what I'm about to tell you is true. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. That's another footnote that, again, doesn't seem necessary. It's, it's, It's a way of doubling the charge. I'm speaking the truth. Oh yes, I'm also speaking the truth in Christ. All right, well, back to what he's saying. I'm not lying. Wait, wait, one more footnote. He's speaking the truth to you in Christ. Oh, yeah, he's also not lying. So he means this, guys. <laughs> All right. No, wait, one more footnote. My conscience bears me witness, he says. <laughs> so he's speaking the truth in Christ. He's not lying. And his conscience even confirms this. All right, on to it. No, wait, in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so he gives you five little prefixes here five little notes to let you know how serious he's being 
So this means engage your mind here. This is a serious deal to Paul. He's speaking the truth in Christ. He's not lying. His conscience bears him witness in the Holy Spirit. He has, un, he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Why? Why are you so distressed, Paul? And he says in verse 3, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's saying here, I would like to trade my salvation for the Jews' salvation. His brothers, his kinsmen, the other rabbis, the other Pharisees that he knew, they are not following Christ. And it seems like their hearts have been confirmed in their sin also by how they've responded to the gospel. And so Paul doesn't even have the footnote here that he doesn't know how they'll turn out. Maybe they will get saved. He's, he's almost moved beyond that here. And he's like, I don't know. I wish, the only way it seems like they could get saved is if I could give, I would give my salvation to God in exchange for theirs. If I, and I know salvation doesn't work like that. And Paul knows it doesn't work like that. But appreciate his logic here. God, I would trade. This is how much I love these other Jewish brothers. I would trade my salvation so they could be saved. I would go to hell so they could go to heaven. That's the starting point for Paul's treatise here on predestination. So again, Paul is guarding himself from the air of coming across as like, oh, I don't care what happens to people when they die, as we so often do when we flippantly talk about predestination. Paul's guarding himself from that air by saying at the very beginning and telling the truth about it in Christ and in the Holy Spirit that he wishes he could trade his salvation so that the Jews could be saved. If you have unbelieving kids, perhaps you've had that, that thought before in your own mind that you would trade your salvation for theirs. And of course, it's not the way salvation works. It's not a, a, a commodity that can be traded or bartered, but that's how Paul says, I wish it could be that way. In verse four, they're the Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants from the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, these plural covenants through their past, they all belong to them. The giving of the law, on Sinai, the worship and the promises, specifically the promises of the Savior. The Israelites had all of those. To them, Paul says in verse 5, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul's saying they have everything that they need to be saved, except they're not. Now, what are they missing in this context here? Well, as we go through it, it'll be obvious. They're missing predestination. These individual Israelites who he's talking about were not elected by God for salvation. That's the bottom line here. That's what started this conversation. That's what will end this conversation is that God has not chosen them. It doesn't seem, again, we don't know how their life ends, but at this point, it doesn't seem like God has chosen them. And Paul says, I would like to trade my salvation for their salvation. I mean, they have everything that, from the scripture the promises, the worship, they're the ones that descended from the people who got the law on Mount Sinai. I mean, what's missing for them? All that's missing is predestination, election. And so it seems like they're not going to heaven. And this grieves Paul. And this is cuts him to his heart because it gets to the nature of God. It gets to the nature of his friends. And, and let me make it more personal for us tonight as you think through, you know, I'm not tempted to think that the Jews have an advantage over the Gentiles. Although there are some people that, that, that do. There are some uh, American pastors, somewhat prominent pastors that say that, that Jewish uh, people don't need a savior to go to heaven, that they're saved just by virtue of their Jewishness. Um, 
And to them, I would, to those pastors, I would direct their attention to Romans 9, 1 through 5 for a good place to start, where you see people that actually have the promises of Isaiah that Paul says are not saved, that they are accursed, um, even though there is kinsmen according to the flesh. But moving beyond that, many of you probably aren't tempted to think that way, but let me show you where this rears its head now. There's this common idea, especially among American evangelicals, and I keep saying American evangelicals because Americans are big in the everybody deserves an equal chance category. As long as everybody has an equal chance, one person, one vote, as long as everyone can cast their vote and you don't choose Christ, it's all on you, not on God, it's all on you. There's a big time problem with that, that you need to have your minds around, that the vast majority of people from human history have not been born into a country or into a culture with access to God's word. The majority of people who have ever lived have not had this opportunity to hear about Christ and reject him that the Jews had. And so if you're in the one person, one vote mentality that I don't care what predestination is as long as the person gets to cast the tie-breaking vote. You know, the old adage that God votes you for you to go to heaven, the devil votes you to go to hell, and every individual casts the tie-breaking vote. Well, it's not a democracy here. You have to wrestle with the fact that that might make sense in an American context where there's churches in every street corner and so you can say if you're not a Christian, it's on you because you've closed your ears to the gospel. But you have to think more globally than that. That answer does not cut it globally. Globally, most people who have ever lived have lived in a culture that does not have the Bible. And so you're going to end up very quickly with having to have a category for people going to heaven who've never heard of the Savior, which is a theological no-no. Right? If, you're, if your idea of predestination takes you to a place where you say there's got to be a way for people who have never heard the gospel to go to heaven when they die, that's a problem. Or you're back at the beginning by saying, well, who decides where somebody's born? Who decides if somebody's born in a culture where there is the Bible or where they're not? Or somebody's born in a place where they could hear about the Savior or they're not? Who decides that? Not us. Did you decide? Did you get to decide when you were born that you would be born in a place that have the gospel? Of course not. Nobody asked, nobody asked you if you wanted to be born. <laughs> this is where Paul starts. There's no advantage, he says. Predestination is not contingent upon your ethnicity or your culture. In, the, in this world, it's, the Jews didn't have an advantage over the Gentiles. In our present day world, being born into an, Amer- into an American or Christian culture doesn't give you a leg up on all those heathen out there. Like, oh, I'm responsible for my salvation because when I heard the gospel, I chose. That was me who did that, I chose. I exercised my faith, I heard the gospel and God knew I would choose before the foundation of the time so he chose me to choose because he knew I would choose. Well, that does not work when you think globally that most people will never hear the gospel. And so if your understanding of predestination is that God saw you would choose when given the chance, do you see the huge advantage you're giving yourself based upon your ethnicity? And that is what is not acceptable in Romans 9, 1 through 5. And that's immediately going to lead to this objection. If somebody is not more likely to be saved based upon having the Bible, based upon having the scripture to use the Jewish language, did the Bible fail? Did the Old Testament have one task and that task was to bring people to faith in Christ and now here are the Jews and they are apart from Christ. So therefore, did the Bible fail? It was supposed to bring the Jews to salvation. They didn't come to salvation. Problem. 
The Bible must have failed. And that's Paul's objection he picks up in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God had failed. And this is going to lead to our second point about predestination. Predestination is not based on anything inside your country. Secondly, it's not based upon anything good inside of your family. They're going to keep narrowing here. First, you don't have a leg up over those heathen by being in a country with the Bible. Secondly, you don't have a leg up over those heathen by being part of the right family. (laughs) Like, oh, if you were the right family of Israelites, then... Maybe they could have been saved. And Paul's saying the word of God did not fail. Even though the Jews did not come to faith in Christ, it doesn't mean that God's word didn't accomplish what God's word was supposed to accomplish. Which makes you ask, what was God trying to accomplish if not their salvation? Well, bringing the Savior to the world is the answer the rest of the book of Romans gives. But now he's going to speak of a specific family in Israel. It's not as though the word of God has failed, verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all those who are descended from Israel, Jacob, the person, belong to Israel, the, the saving, regenerate part of Israel. So in the Old Testament Israel, you have to have this category. Not everybody with the word Israelite on their birth certificate is an Israelite by faith. Not everybody with the mark of circumcision has a circumcised heart. Not everybody who is uh, descended from one of the 12 tribes is going to be in heaven when they die. They're not all regenerate in the Old Testament. Not all Israel by name or Israel by profession or faith is the, the example here. And not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. And so go back to Abraham and his call to God that he would have a nation. How did God choose the nation Israel? He chose Abraham. So you might think, yes, so God chose the Jews because of the family that they were in or because of their, their, their father, Abraham. And so Paul's going to make this point. Not all of Abraham's children were chosen. He had two children, Ishmael, before he had Abraham. Why wasn't Ishmael the one who received the promise? After all, if everybody's spinning their wheels worried about how old Abraham is and how could he possibly have a nation to send from him, why not uh, just choose the first child he has? <laughs> I mean, that would take a load of worry off of Sarah, for starters. <laughs> but God did not choose Ishmael. That's the bottom line. You could say it was because of Sarah versus Hagar, but that's not even true. The real reason that it's not Ishmael is because Ishmael did not receive God's choice. It's circular, but that's the way Paul presents it. This means, verse 8, that not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but it's the children of the promise who are counted as the offspring. The promise being God's promise, his predestining, electing work. Predestination is not based upon being in the right family because even inside of a family, God may choose one and not the other. And in this case, it's very easy to say, well, it's the person had the the wrong mother. But understand that God doesn't predestine you to salvation based upon your parents. Not all who are the children of Abraham are the recipients of Abraham's promise. This means, verse 8, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. In verse 9, this is what the promise said, but this time next year I'll return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived and children by one man, our forefather Isaac, and we're going to get to this, this point next, but just pause here and marvel at this, that God chose for the offspring to come through Sarah. Why? Because he's demonstrating his power of election. That's the difference, that God is choosing his power to display his power in the doctrine of election. 
It's more than being in the right family or being in the right nation. If Abraham, the example of Abraham teaches us anything is that when it comes to predestination, there is no right family. Right? <laughs> you'd think Ishmael won. If you say, oh, predestination is like the divine lottery, well, you'd think that Ishmael won the lottery. <laughs> but he did not. Predestination is not blind luck. It's not a lottery. It's the plan of God. There's a person behind this plan. There's a will behind this plan. It's based upon God's free will and his volition. And he did not choose Ishmael. So, still an easy response to say, yeah, but the reason he didn't choose Ishmael is the wrong mother. If Ishmael would have had the right mother, then he would have been chosen. What's missing is the mother in this equation. And so now let's move to a pair of twins that have the same father and mother. That's the way twins work. I learned that in school. This leads to our third point. Predestination is not based on anything good inside of you. Now we're going to look at a pair, these two twins. Verse 10, they're both from Rebecca. She conceived children by one man. And that's obvious, of course, but he's just reiterating here that it's not based on the parents, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue or might stand, the Greek says, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This was declared by God before he made these two, these two children. Before they were born, God declared, I'm loving one and hating the other. Now, to clear up a quick thing about, here about hate, you know, in our family, we don't let our kids say, say hate. So it's, you know, too strong of a word. Your family might have a similar rule. It's not used that way in the Hebrew mind. In the Hebrew mind, if there's a choice, you choose one, you love that one, and you hate the other. There's two different ways to drive home from here to, uh, to my house. If I go one way, I say I love that way, and I'm, I'm hating the other way. From my house to church, it's more of a race. I might, if my wife and I leave the same time, we might go, I might go the opposite way that she goes, just see which is faster. They're both exactly the same amount of time. My wife seems to always win. There's that going on too. But when you choose one, you're saying, I love this way. I hate the other. That's in the Jewish mind. You have a choice. Two apples, which one are you going to eat? You love one, you hate the other. So that's what's behind here. It's not this emotional hatred of Esau before he's born. It's this demonstration of choice that God is choosing Jacob and he's not choosing Esau and this is happening before they are born this should shoot with the machine gun the idea of the VCR kind of predestination because here he's saying that he does this he chooses before they've done anything good or bad so it's not, he's saying definitively, it's not based on God seeing them do something good or bad. It's based only upon the language here in, in verse 11, God's purpose of election. So in other words, God had Rebecca conceive twins for one reason, to demonstrate to you that salvation does not depend upon your parents, but it depends upon God. It's a wrong answer to say it doesn't depend on your parents, therefore it depends on me. We're getting to that next. <laughs> Here he's just saying it doesn't depend upon your parents. It depends upon God. It doesn't depend upon your nation. It doesn't depend upon your family. It depends upon God. And specifically here, it doesn't depend anything upon even you. It says it's not based on doing anything good or bad. Listen, if election or predestination were based upon you doing good things, that is work salvation, right? I don't know how to get around that. If someone says God elects somebody or predestines them because God knows what they're going to do, that, my friends, is works-based salvation. Because now you're being saved based upon something inside of you. 
And that's just not what's presented here in the book of Romans. Ultimately, when you give grace or when you give praise to your salvation, you sing amazing grace, I once was lost, but now I am found. You don't say I once was lost, but I've found myself. (laughs) There's that old delirious Christian song. You might be approximately 42 years old if you remember the Christian group Delirious. (laughs) They sing that song, I found Jesus. Cool song. Drives me crazy theologically though. It's a jamming song, but the chorus is I found Jesus. Come on, man. Better theology than that. Read Romans 9. (laughs) It doesn't depend upon man doing anything good or bad, but God's purpose of election, not because of works. It was told the older was said, the younger Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Well, that immediately leads you to this objection. If that's true, if salvation depends only upon God's free will and not man's free will, if that is true, that God exercises his free will in whom he'll save, then I have an objection. Namely, let me phrase my objection in the form of a statement. That's not fair. (laughs) That's not fair. And if you're a parent, you've heard that phrase a million times. That's not fair. And that's going to lead me to this point. Predestination is not an injustice. Although, and this could even be in parentheses, it is a non-justice. Predestination is not an injustice, but it is a non-justice. And let me distinguish those two for a moment for you. An injustice is something that contradicts justice. So justice would be X and an injustice does Why? It does something against justice. Justice would be uh, uh, somebody being punished for their, their crimes and an injustice is an innocent person being punished for their crime. That's not what predestination is. It's not an injustice, but predestination is a non-justice. It's a withholding of justice. It's not a miscarriage of justice. It's a withholding of justice. So if I got arrested right now for robbing a bank and sentenced to 10 years in jail or whatever the going rate these days is for a bank robbery, that would be an injustice because I have not robbed a bank, to my knowledge. (laughs) No, I'll plead not guilty. I've not robbed a bank. (laughs) So that would be an injustice. But if I did rob a bank, or right now, let's say that I was speeding on the way over here, which seems reasonable enough. (laughs) If I was speeding on the way over here and I didn't get a ticket, that's a non-justice. That's a non-justice. There's something I deserve that's withheld from me. Do you see the difference between the two? Predestination is not an injustice, although it is a non-justice. And here you have to have that distinction. This is the, the objection that comes right away, of course, after God says, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated which he says before they were even born. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? It's not fair if that's true. And Paul says, by no means, ume in Greek, may it never be. Absolutely not. You cannot call God unjust. It's not unjust on God's part. And here's where you have to confront our American concept of fairness. Uh, The word fair in the American culture means equal, doesn't it? Equal. And that's just built into our, our democratic society. You get one vote, I get one vote. That's fair. If you got two votes and I got a half of a vote, that's unfair. Unfair. If you have children, again, you understand this. Uh, uh, my oldest daughter, she gets more vegetables than the uh, under, other daughters, but I've never heard the other daughter say, Dad, that's not fair that she gets all that broccoli. Not fair. But when it comes to dessert time, if my oldest daughter gets a micro nanometer more of the desserts than the younger two, immediately two voices like baby birds. That's not fair. Look, she had more dessert. She had more broccoli. Yeah, not fair. 
She's older. It's, in our American world, fair means equal. And so is predestination fair? Well, no. It's not in that sense equal. We'll get more to that in a second. But it's certainly not injustice. It's certainly not injustice. Predestination is not the same for everybody. It's distinguished like it is between Jacob and Esau. And so here, Paul, verse 14, says no means. Verse 15, he's going to use an example from the Old Testament. He says to Moses, this is God speaking to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And this, the I'll have mercy on whom I want to is God speaking, and I'll have compassion on whom I want to, it's God speaking. And remember, he's telling this to Moses, and Moses says, I don't want to talk. I don't want to rescue my people. God's like, I'm going to rescue whoever I'm going to rescue. And Pharaoh can do what Pharaoh's going to do, but I'm still going to have mercy on whom I want to have mercy. If I want to show compassion to the Israelites, I'll do it, God says. I'll do it. So it does not, verse 16, depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I mean, this verse is one of those verses that should be boxed in your Bible with a star next to it. Salvation or predestination does not depend upon human will or exertion, effort, what you put into it. It depends on God who shows mercy. It depends upon God who shows mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Nobody finishes reading the book of Exodus and goes, that's not fair to Pharaoh. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, the takeaway from the 10 plagues is not, man, that is unjust on Pharaoh. You read the 10 plagues and you know, God gave Pharaoh chance after chance, specifically 10 chances. And he botched all of them. When the chariots get drowned in, the, in the, the Red Sea crossing, you don't end it going, that is just not fair. No, it is fair. It is justice. They were rebelling against God. But that's not even the takeaway point here. The takeaway point is that God intervened in history in a dramatic way to rescue who he wanted to rescue. That's the takeaway. And God can do that. He can show mercy on whoever he wants to show mercy. And what if God only raised up Pharaoh and hardened his heart for one reason, and that was to show us the power of his mercy? That's the question in verse 17. It's not, it's not even formed in a question. It's a statement. For this very purpose, I raised you up, quoting Exodus 9, verse 16, that I can show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So Pharaoh is raised up by God so that God can show his power to save whom he wants to save. Is that unjust? It's not an injustice. It's not an injustice. Americans often turn this into the question, why doesn't God save everyone then? And Paul first wants to point out the real miscarriage of justice is not why doesn't God save everyone, but why does God save anyone? I mean, that's the million dollar question. And you have to marvel at the person who, who says, why doesn't God save everyone then? Because they're arguing from a position of saying predestination is not a thing. That God doesn't choose who, who's saved. God does not choose who's saved. And if he does, why doesn't he choose everyone then? Well, I thought you just said he doesn't choose. <laughs> Did God choose to save Israel? Yes. Did he choose to raise Pharaoh up to deliver Israel? Yes. Did he do that to display his mercy? Yes. If you're really concerned about justice, pause for a moment and be upset that God saved you. Well, let me move along here. Predestination, let me turn to an affirmative here. 
maybe to an affirmative. Well, no, the next slide should say predestination is double, but not equal. Predestination is double, but it's not equal. Or, there you go, predestination is equal, but it is double. Tyler, return. Predestination is double, but not equal. And then the question comes this way. If God raises people up for salvation, and he doesn't raise other people up for salvation, why does he still find fault? If God chooses whom he's going to save, and he doesn't choose everyone, why does God judge people by sending them to hell if he didn't choose them to begin with? Do you follow that question? Why doesn't he choose everyone? Why does God still find fault if he didn't choose everyone for heaven? If verse 18 is true, he has mercy on whomever he wills, he hardens whomever he wills, why does God still judge people? And the point here, with the, it's a kind of a, a sun analogy, the sun is shining and hardening clay, why doesn't he just save everyone? And this is what is called the, the doctrine of double predestination, that predestination is not, um, is, is, double but it's not equal in other words god chooses a person's destiny for heaven or for hell but he doesn't choose them the same way when he chooses somebody's destination as heaven he's choosing to go into the world and give them a new nature and change their heart and give them life and save them and and send them to heaven that's the active form of election when somebody is predestined to hell it does not require god changing their nature at all it requires god giving them over to their desires god doesn't do anything to them that in a sense is not just that's the distinguishing feature so predestination is is equal i mean it's double but it's not equal they're not two of the same thing in other words god it's not divine duck duck goose heaven heaven hell 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 heaven 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 you see how that's an equal form it's the same motion and you're familiar with duck duck goose right that's not what predestination is it's not god choosing this one and that one for heaven and this one for hell and that one for heaven because that's an equal form what it is is god decreeing in his own mind that he will step into time and give some people new lives with the others, he will picture a lot of plates falling. God could catch them all, but he chooses to only catch some. The ones that he doesn't catch are falling on their own accord. The sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached for sinners in the hands of an angry God is from the text, their foot shall slip in due time. And the first line of that sermon is that there's no external force that requires their, that's required to get their foot to slip. It slips on their own accord. The analogy I've often used is if you go into Trader Joe's at 959, and you buy one apple, you're choosing that apple that you get to take with you and eat, you're choosing the other apples to be thrown into the dumpster. But you're not choosing them in the same way. You're choosing to rescue this one. You're not choosing to condemn those. You're just delivering them over to where they're headed already. Yes, you are making the choice, but not in the same way. Now, that analogy has limitations to it, of course, because in that you're choosing the best, shiniest looking apple, and that's not what predestination is like. (laughs) So it's not that God chooses you based on you being the best and the shiniest. The point is on the opposite side, that he chooses some. By not choosing others, their destination is set, but it's set based on something internal in them, their own desire for sin. Why does God still blame people? Because our hearts are the ones that manufacture sin. God is the author of history, but he's not the author of sin. To demonstrate this, he uses the sun to harden hearts, but salvation is not compared to the sun hardening hearts. It's compared to mercy that washes and cleanses hearts. Do you see the difference? To save someone, they need a new heart. To condemn someone, just give them the heart they have. Harden them where they are. God didn't have to put evil into Pharaoh's heart. He just had to harden the evil that was there. 
but God had to use mercy to rescue Israel. Well, people will immediately respond then with verse 19. Why does God still find fault? Because who can resist his will? If this is true, why does God still send people to hell? Because who can resist him? And here's where I have to pause before I go to the next slide. And think, how would I answer the question that's asked in verse 19? Why does he still find fault? And I have ways I would answer that. I could explain how God is sovereign over our own decisions and over our own actions. And we're not robots. We're not programmed as robots. We're volitional creatures and we make choices under the sovereignty and direction of God. Of course, that's true. We're not robots. I have an answer for this, but it's not the answer Paul gives. Look at how Paul answers this in verse 19. He he makes the point, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? But verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? How dare you talk back to God? Which leads to this next point. Predestination is not for people's glory. Predestination is not a doctrine that's designed to give glory to people. It's a doctrine that is designed to give glory to God. And so if your starting point is, well, that's not fair to people, well, it's not for you. It's, a, it's about you, but it's not for you and, and to you. And it's not for your glory and to your glory. It's for God and, and to his glory. And that's why verse 20 is such a profound answer. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? When I was in elementary school, we made ashtrays in art class. We made them. And they were, now, that was totally politically incorrect. Our teachers would go to jail, probably. Sent to Cuba, Guantanamo Bay for making ashtrays I'm sure but now I, I understand this having done you know Plato with kids now I understand the allure of having kids make ashtrays because they're so easy to make <laughs> I mean flatten out put a lip throw it in the oven you're done <laughs> a change drawer they would call that a change drawer now kids don't even know what changes anymore <laughs> I made an ugly green ashtray pea green with yellow streaks to it it was grotesque but I made it And when I get that thing out of the oven, it cannot talk back to me and say, you put yellow in me? Are you out of your mind, maker? Why do I have yellow in me? Look at all the other cool ashtrays. They're all blue and red, and you made me green and yellow? Gross. Ashtray, it can't talk back to me because I made it. This is where Paul's going. You can't talk back to God about how God made you. You don't like the way he made the universe? Make your own. Don't talk back to the one who made you. And this, I mean, who do you think you are? The universe is not for your glory. Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Can't God make what he wants from who he wants, why he wants to make it? And now verse 22, it's in the form of a question. But in the, in the Greek mind, this is called a, a, a class condition that's implied. In English, you can imply the answer to a rhetorical question by the tone of your voice. Like, you're not really going to preach this long, are you? Implies, oh, I can't believe this is still going on. Yeah. And do you really like McDonald's? This implies the answer should be no. And this, the way this question is worded in the Greek, implies the answer is yes, this is an affirmative question. What if God and the implications that he does, desires to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of his mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. This is the closest the Bible gets to answering the question, why doesn't God God choose everybody? Now, before I go through that verse again even slower, let me show you the opposite. So here's the question. Somebody will ask, if God chooses whom he's going to save, why doesn't he save everybody? Wouldn't he have more glory from saving everybody? 
And I always flip that question around. I say, pretend you don't believe in predestination and election. Pretend you don't believe those things. Why doesn't God choose everyone? Do you believe that God knows this person right here is going to go to hell when he dies and, and pretend he is? And does God know that before he's born? And the answer is yes, he does. Why does God still make him? Why does God make this person knowing he's going to go to hell? What's God after with him? And generally the answer I'll hear is something along the lines of, well, he's, they've got to be made uh, in order to demonstrate the capacity for choice and they're not using their choice to please God. And so in other words, it's okay for God to make a person to go to hell if his ultimate damnation vindicates the power of choice and volition and free will. And that's not a helpful answer to me. It's not, it's not worth it in my mind. That's not a good trade-off. I'd rather God not make me people for hell and me just not know the power of free will. <laughs> But the answer Paul gives here in Romans is why, does this per- why is this person made for hell? Again, assuming the story is over, why is this person made for hell? The closest the Bible gets to answering it is that he's made for hell to demonstrate the glory of God in that God bore the, with this person for so long with long suffering, much long suffering, much patience. He endured him with patience and he's demonstrating the wrath and his power in hell which makes in verse 23 us know the riches of glory. We're vessels of mercy and we appreciate that. We were prepared beforehand for glory. And so in other words, what if hell only existed just to show the glory of God? That's it. What if the only reason God makes people for hell is so that his glory and power is seen in salvation, in saving people from hell? What if that's the only reason? Is that good enough for you if that's the only reason? Or specifically, Romans 9 verse 5, is that good enough for Paul if the only reason that he had the Jews not believe in the Savior was to see the power of election and the glory of the gospel in that? There are other reasons too. Of course there are other reasons. God's doing 10,000 things through every individual. But what if the only one of those reasons was to show his glory? Is that good enough? And I think that it is. I humbly submit to you that the existence of hell, if its only reason is to show the glory of God, makes it acceptable. Not that I have to sign off on it, but if it reveals the glory of God, I would. Verse the existence of hell demonstrating the power of free will and of human volition. Not acceptable to me, not worth it, not a trade-off I would make. Well, Time has escaped me. Let me just give you the next few points here. Predestination is essential for salvation. In other words, if God didn't predestine people to heaven, there would be nobody there. If God left everybody to their own quote-unquote free will, guess what? Heaven would be empty. Nobody would choose God. And that's where Paul goes in verse 24. This is not just true for the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hodea, verse 25, those who are not my people, I'll call my people. Those who are not beloved, I'll call my beloved. Uh, I wish we would have time to go to Hosea to look at this, but uh, again, time gets away from us. In the book of Hosea, though, remember that Hosea is going after his wife and his children. If Hosea didn't go after him, they wouldn't come to him. That was the point. I mean, she sold herself into slavery. She is done with him. But he goes after his family in order to redeem them. That's what God says is a picture of election. If God didn't predestine people to heaven, there would be nobody there. Nobody would come. Nobody would use their free will to choose him. 
And finally, predestination is essential for salvation down through verse 29. And then it's in keeping with the character of God and the gospel. Predestination is in keeping with the character of God and the gospel. And that's how the chapter ends. Predestination reveals the righteousness of God in verse 30. It's a righteousness that comes by faith. If you could earn your way to salvation in verse 31, then it would be a righteousness that comes from works. That's Paul's point in verse 31. Israel tried to pursue righteousness based on the law, but they didn't get it because that's not how the righteousness of God is acquired. And so Paul's circling back here to sum everything up, that if you were predestined to heaven based upon something inside of you, that would be more in line with the way law was given in the Old Testament, which is not designed to make somebody righteous. That was his point back in Romans 2 and 3 as well. The law is a mirror. It's not a toothbrush. It's not designed to clean you up. It's designed to show you you need help getting cleaned up. If you, could, if you were chosen based upon your law keeping or something good inside of you, that would be a works righteousness. That's why it's not, it doesn't come that way. And this is fitting because that's the way the gospel comes to us. You know, Jesus was rejected by the people who thought that you could earn salvation. He was rejected by the people who thought they were chosen by God because of their ethnicity. Verse 33, he, Jesus is the stumbling block a rock of offense, but whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Well, I've gone way longer than I wanted to. Let me pray for us. Lord, we know that you are sovereign, that you have a decree, and that you're working out the world according to your, your foreknowledge, your own free will. Our will is always contingent, contingent upon our language, our culture, the people we're around how different that is from your will. Your will was contingent upon nothing. There was nobody acting on you. There's no constraints upon you. Your mind has infinite capability, infinite possibility, infinite power. You could have designed any kind of worlds that you wanted, but you designed this one, which is most in keeping with your character and your nature. Lord, guard our mouths from speaking back to you from talking back to you about how you made us or why didn't you make other people in other ways. Help us see the ravaging power of sin in the world that mars your image in us, but help us hold fast to the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. We know, of course, where Paul goes in the rest of Romans, the importance of missions, the importance of evangelism, that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the words about Christ. This is why it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news to the world. Lord, we don't want to lose sight of that in any conversation about predestination. We want to Hold fast to the idea that you send us into the world. We are missionaries. We are your ambassadors for Christ. We know that you don't just choose the ends, but you choose the means, that there are people in this city that we're living in right now, in Alexandria, in Springfield, in Washington, D.C., there are people that you have chosen for salvation that have yet to hear the gospel. So Lord, use us this week to bring them that gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. 
I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.